What if everything you're searching for is already inside of you? Hi, I'm Cassandra Goodman, and I believe that true power comes from staying connected to who we really are at our core. This is a podcast about what it means to stay true to ourselves and why authentic leadership is such tricky business. You'll hear inspiring real life stories from big hearted leaders. I hope these stories help you to remember that true power comes from within. So today on the podcast, I am talking with Bill Sheffield. Bill is the Chief People Officer at West Fund Health Insurance. And I was fortunate to meet Bill many years ago after we were introduced and I ended up doing some work to support Bill in his role at at West Fund and the amazing team that he leads there. So thank you so much for coming along today, Bill, to share a bit of your experience and welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure. So we've talked a little bit about this podcast, which is all about this idea that true power comes from within and that when we're really kind of anchored in who we really are at our core, we are at our most powerful. And I've explained that this is really just a series of candid conversations uh, with lots of leaders in all different walks of life about what does it mean to be true to ourselves and how we can often find ourselves kind of off the path of where perhaps we're supposed to be. And so, Bill, the first question I wanted to ask you is if you might be willing to share a little bit about a time in your life when you realised you were not being true to yourself. Yes, I would say in 2012, my wife and I emigrated to Australia um, on the back of me having had a really successful career over 28 years, um, mostly working in the training, uh, L&D, uh, HR, operational HR space, um, and secured, you know, fairly senior, senior roles in the industry that I worked in. And then when I arrived in Australia, um, okay, you know, different call different country different culture different challenges but i did expect to to fit in back into hr or training in some way in in some industry uh my in uh, my industry was uh was mining but uh, i wasn't precious to that what i did found pretty quickly and pretty pretty sobering was the fact that there was nobody queuing up to to give to give me a role i had no networks i uh, didn't know the people even in the industry that I left, there was one or two ex-colleagues, but nobody that could really influence um, anyone um, being able to, to secure me a role. And um, I started to question myself, was, you know, all these years, all this study, you know, a master's degree in strategic human resource management, um, was I basically maybe a little bit of an imposter, was, you know, because I couldn't secure a role, was, uh, should I start looking towards doing something different? And I almost convinced myself, yeah, HR's not the place for you, training's not the place for you, you've, you've done it, you know, maybe move on to something new. So I started to explore and, and try some other things. And then I got to the point where it was really, I was really convinced that, you know, HR and training was definitely in the past. I was very audible speaking to my wife, yeah, that's all in the past. But 
in my heart of hearts, in my core, I missed it and probably felt a little bit empty, but I wouldn't admit that to myself because of my meeting failure as well. Um, and then when the opportunity did come along for a senior role back in uh, the people in culture and HR space, I was very, very hesitant. If that had been a 12 months ill, I would have been grabbing it with both hands, but I was almost, I don't know, afraid to touch it. I think partly because I didn't want the disappointment if I didn't secure the role. So I was almost kidding myself that, um, yeah, this is probably still not for you. So I was very tentative towards engaging in conversations around with regards to that role. Thankfully, it was a life changer. I, I, I did put myself forward and back into people in culture and back into HR and it and it's basically changed my life uh, really living in Australia gave me so much opportunity found myself again um, yeah so yeah so being true to myself I, I wasn't certainly not being true to myself I was basically lying to myself but I suppose not wanting to hurt anymore really you know not wanting the disappointment mm. getting back into my you know career that I'd loved but having said that, the experiences that I had outside of my career, uh, I wouldn't have missed them for anything because they brought a certain richness. It was it was very sobering um, working in you know other industries completely different from my own, um, and maybe give me time to maybe find myself a little bit, um, and then come back into the people in culture spaces. You know maybe even a better leader, if you like. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. And I, I find it so interesting how we can convince ourselves, you know, to, I suppose, take perhaps what felt like the safer option in, in that case. And I think what you said there towards the end where perhaps one of the reasons you were able to be so successful in convincing yourself that HR really wasn't for you anymore you said because perhaps I didn't want to hurt anymore and I think that's really interesting isn't it because when we do follow our heart when we when we stay the course and we or, or we find the course where work really is very meaningful when we're doing work that's really aligned to who we are and the purpose we have in the world there's a risk of heartbreak there isn't there when we care so much it can be heartbreaking work. I think so because, you know, when you've worked so hard, especially as a leader in that people and culture space, um, if you think, you know, when I think about the amount of times when I've been in a position where, you know, you basically make a decision around that can change people's lives. And there's a certain set of values that you bring to that. And, you know, it's a skill whereby, you know, it can have value in a lot of organisations you would be not, if you were given the opportunity to, to exercise it again. And um, I think, yeah, that working with people, that influencing and helping people become better people. And, you know, uh, part of my sort of, you mentioned, you know, you mentioned in your book, uh, cast about, you know, people almost on the deathbed and kind of regrets. And, um, you know, I, I would say at the core of my soul, my legacy, uh, when I do find myself in that, that 
situation is that I've positively impacted as many people's lives as I can. And mm. I truly believe that, and that's always been a desire. So if I'm not working in that space, <laughs> you know, how do I achieve that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful to positively impact as many people's lives as possible. And and when we find the courage to honor our calling, that's what becomes possible, right? And and you know, I a lot of the work I do, I work with HR leaders. I spent time as a senior HR professional myself. And it is heartbreaking work when you're trying to take care of people often in organizational systems that can at times be quite dehumanizing. And I often, you know, I wonder if part of the challenge we have is that people who are originally drawn to HR work are really big hearted leaders who want to help people and, and make a difference. And, and then we find ourselves in these organizational systems that can often make that work very, very difficult. And um, sometimes I wonder if the heartbreaking nature of that work is what causes some HR leaders perhaps to become a little bit numb or a little bit even hardened at the extreme. Uh, I remember one leader pulling me aside in my career and he said to me, the problem with you, Cassie, is that you care too much. If you ever want to become a senior executive, you've got to learn how to care less. And I rejected that advice, but I think what he was trying to say to me is prepare for heartbreak. <laughs> what, what's your thoughts on that? I had a colleague recently, a senior colleague who's actually moved on to be a CEO now. He said to me that he was giving some feedback to a colleague about me, and this is how to engage with Bill. And Bill can be two extremes. He can be really you know, sort of kind of soft and caring, or it can be really, you know, very matter of fact, you know, life-changing decisions don't seem to be such an issue for him, which they are. So, you know, we talk about situational leadership and I think at the heart of it, you know, stepping into someone's shoes and trying to look through their eyes, really trying to feel about their situation, knowing about that person, knowing what's happening in their lives, you know, whether they've got children and and, and I, I try and find out that be too intrusive as much as I can about the players in any given situation and spend quite a bit of time, you know, when I'm driving back home or I'm on the train thinking about, right, okay, what does the world look like for them? And I've had another colleague who's left recently who said to me that they'd given some feedback to uh, some senior people in the business about me again, because I would, you know, I was this person's leader, the person leaving. And um, she just said she just described me as someone who's, you know, can make really hard decisions, um, but knows that that person's got a home to go to, and that person's got a life to go to, and that balance both both of those things. So I do think it's important, you know, to be able to step in, and it's really, really difficult to try and step in somebody else's shoes, especially if you can't maybe identify with them too strongly or they're doing a different job role or, or a different age or gender or, or anything from, from yourself so sometimes it is difficult but I think you've got to make an effort to do that and the more you do it and the more you practice it the better the, the better the better you get because whenever you're making a decision that can change the course of someone's life and that could be anything from we aren't allowing you to do further education or you're no longer a good fit for this business or 
you know, it could be a breadth of different, you know, situations. Um, yeah, it's very important to take it very seriously, you know, not to be knee-jerk in any way at all and to think about the people concerned. So, yeah, I would say that's, that's kind of where I, where I come from. Yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons I've enjoyed working with you over these years, Bill, is that you really do take that responsibility so seriously and that, that you are a deeply reflective leader that does really, as, as much as you can, put yourself in the shoes of other people. And I think that's the sort of leadership we, we so desperately need in the world today, leadership that's grounding in, in empathy or at least an, an attempt towards empathy um, to possibly understand what others are going through and and to treat them the, the way they, they need to be treated. I was actually going to add something because whilst I, I, was, I was reading your latest book and doing some deep thinking as I was driving. <laughs> um, so when I started my, my first day of postgraduate education at Nottingham University, a professor came in and said, um, and he slammed this book on the table. It was the CIPD, uh, sorry, the IPD in the uh, ITD uh, in the UK. So the Institute of Personal Development, Institute of Training and Development merged into uh, the Chartered Institute of Personal Development and they call the magazine uh, Managing People. Um, and well, the emphasis was managing people. And this professor says it's ridiculous to think that anybody can manage anybody because you've got all managing yourself. And that has always really, really stuck with me. So when we were talking about, you know, your book about managing parts and about IFS and and then I started to think, well, really, yeah, it's managing parts, but it's about self-leadership. And then I actually watched a couple of IFS videos and they were talking about self-leadership. I thought, ha, oh, bingo, there we go. You know, so again, you know, as a leader, um, it's been really sober and understanding that you cannot really manage anyone else because it's a day's work managing yourself. But what you can do is help people lead themselves more productively. Yeah. Using that wisdom as a leader, sharing the stories, uh, opening people's horizons, but not maybe giving them the answer or telling them what they've got to do. Um, yeah. Anyway. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm curious, as you think back to that, that period in your life when you were resisting the call back into HR and you convinced yourself that perhaps your HR days were behind you, if you could go back in time and give yourself some words of wisdom, knowing what you now know, what, what would you say to yourself? First of all, since then, well, all right, I'll answer your question. The world isn't against you, Billy. Yeah, the world isn't against you. And for any of the issues you're face, facing, how much are you actually contributing to not being able to fix it, all right, or be able to find a remedy? Because the answer lies within yourself, not others. Because you can influence yourself, uh, but you can't always influence other people. And I think, you know, that not externalising, but looking at your inner self for the answers is probably the majority, certainly working with you as well, Cass. That's been a journey for me over the last few years. Um, yeah, the answers are within you. Don't blame others. Um, mm. Kind of, that's where I, 
one of the big lessons over the last few years, I would say. Big mm. learnings, unlearning. Oh, <laughs> unlearning, it's not everybody, it's not anybody else's fault. <laughs> it's it's, exter <laughs> it's, it's right. external, but learning, yeah, I think there's something really sobering and gratifying about, yeah, well, probably, you know, 80% of that outcome is actually the decisions, the decisions I made rather than 80% of the outcome resulting from other people's decisions or the environment or so forth. Right, and it's so easy to narrow our focus in terms of not really taking in the full breadth of possibilities that exist for us in any one moment. You know, our thinking can so easily kind of give us tunnel vision, right, through what the stories we tell ourselves and how we convince ourselves. And you so often in with coaching conversations, when I bring just a broader perspective and I'll say to people, well, given what you shared, you know, have you considered these sorts of possibilities or these sorts of options? And so often the optionality and the possibilities that seem so obvious to me have never even occurred to people. And I'm, I'm constantly... Um, intrigued by how how we can narrow our focus in that way because of the beliefs and the stories we tell ourselves. Yeah, I think as a leader, you know, being able to assist people to navigate their own, you know, towards their own story or their own goal or vision, even though you can probably give some very strong indicators. Um, I think. The wisdom and quality of a good leader is being able to allow that person to navigate themselves as much as they possibly can um, because then the outcome is much more solid and there's much more ownership there um yeah i think that's important absolutely when those answers come within we're so much more involved in them right rather i think there's studies that say most advice is not taken on board right so that's why advice sure. giving doesn't work it has to be an insight that emerges from within us yeah i think so i think so, there is well um, sorry yeah no, but, no you go sorry. ahead you're going to share then no, i think the other thing i mean certainly um like i'm 55 and my i've got a daughter who's two and that kind of brings a different perspective as well and when i look back I've got two older children, you know, 31 years old and 28 years old. And I look at my father in schools, parents in schools <laughs> back then. And, you know, look, I think it's quite horrifying, really. You know, some of the probably mistakes that I made that I could have done so much better. But, you know, when something as rich as this comes into your life, you know, at 55 and, you know, father again, um, that's kind of changed my old perspective as well. And where this book has been really powerful for me, and I've got to say this, Cass, is, you know, coming back to your first question about, you know, sort of what would you have done different or when have you not been true to yourself? Um, I made a promise the first day my daughter was born that I would always be the best possible father that I could, could be. And whilst, you know, my two older children would have said, yeah, I was a good father, um, I feel all those parts when I was younger as a, as a parent were coming in all of the time, sort of questioning me and um, whether I was doing the right thing or, um, and now, yeah, reading this book um, and thinking about those different parts 
has been quite liberating, genuinely liberating. And certainly is kind of connected with some we're thinking around the type of father I want to be for, for my daughter. And yeah, it's been really quite rich for me. Oh, I'm so yeah, pleased sorry. to hear that. Yeah. yeah. I think parenthood, like in our most important relationships, like the relationships with our children, with our partners, that's when I think we can most often be hijacked by these younger parts of ourselves because there's so much vulnerability in these key relationships, right? I know certainly my kids can trigger me, my husband can trigger me, like no work colleague or coaching client or anyone I've ever known in a work context ever, ever could. And so if we can practice this self-leadership, this awareness of the parts of us that pull us away mm. from who we really are, if we can keep our hearts open to the people we love the most when we're most triggered, that's like the hardest part of, I, I think, self-leadership. Something happened to me last week, I'll just tell you quickly. Yeah. So I finished work on a Thursday and I got a board paper to finish on a Friday. So I travelled, you know, it's three hours, 40 minutes travel time to, from, from the office to, to home, which I only made once a week. And I forgot my laptop. And on the Friday, we're doing the board papers and suddenly I felt the grip of panic. And then I started thinking about the different parts, Cass, sort of. And I went, and I became completely chilled. I thought, well, I can't really influence this. I know there's this panic. And I, I just, that was just an instance. And yeah, just felt really calm. Can't influence it. Don't listen to the voices. Think about something else. And yeah, just that, that's when it kind of really resonated with me because I, I suddenly felt in the grip. I just felt in the grip. I felt the panic and I felt I had to get a solution. And that is when, hold on a minute, stop. Who's telling you you've got to do this? <laughs> That's you huge. That's you amazing. Don't, you don't have to do it. You, you're telling yourself you need to navigate around, get another solution, get a laptop, you know, fire an old laptop up, you know, <laughs> get send your email from your phone to your old, you know. And that's that's how I would have normally sort of tackled that situation. And I just felt just so relaxed about it. Um, just not me. <laughs> no, that is you. Not, <laughs> the calm, relaxed part. The calm. Is yeah, the well, real there you go. Yeah, there you go. And um, so, it, you know, it, that self awareness, it works, Cass. It really does. You know, what's the worst possible thing that can happen? It's not as bad as you probably think. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. If we just spoke to each, to ourselves with more kindness, more patience, that we were able to calm ourselves down and yeah. speak care, like in a caring way towards ourselves. And I, I love when, when I asked you, what would you say to that part of you? Or what would you say to yourself if you went back and you used the term Billy to speak to yourself? You know, I think that's <laughs> perfect, Billy, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Billy, right. You speaking to yourself with these beautiful terms of endearment that, that, send messages of care and reassurance and I've got you buddy like I know this is scary but I've got you we can figure this out this is this is the practice yeah and I also think as well you know uh, when you were talking about practicing in, in your book I found myself instinctively doing that anyway yeah it's mm. almost I think if you 
kind of really curious about these different parts, then you start to play, yeah? In a much more relaxed way. Because quite often these parts can, can seem quite threatening or, you know, not really helpful. But when you actually realize, well, hold on a minute, you know, you can just ask, you know, step back for a moment. Yes, don't suffocate me. I just want to analyze you for a moment. <laughs> you know, this is this is my own kind of way of looking at it and saying, well, you know, it's everything calm down, you know, right, okay. And um, yeah, I never used to, I never, never ever did that until I, I read the read this book it was so refreshing in that way and I've actually been sharing that with others I've, 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 I've been because I you know not being a practitioner a little knowledge can be dangerous what I've been thinking right I've actually been sharing these ideas with people around well you've got many parts you know when you think about it you know this part of me said this and this part of me says that so I've been sharing there sharing my newfound knowledge castle that is amazing thank you I, I think <laughs> if we can bust this myth that we're that we're singular in our psychology you know I think there's so many people who unfortunately have who would believe that if they open their mind to the possibility that there's many different parts of them that they're actually multiple then it would mean there's something wrong with them and so I think yeah, that's, really, that's a stigma, possible stigma that's the thing. it's a big stigma Do Dr mm. Richard Schwartz talks about this a lot that this is the first hurdle we must overcome to benefit from the sort of practices that you and I play with every day the sort of practices you're describing we've got to first overcome that hurdle that that it's not normal to be multiple, that it's not normal to have many voices. But as you say, it just takes a, a little bit of an open mind and us to notice it in a dialogue to realize, of course, there's many parts of me. Of course, I have these voices that constantly push and pull me in different directions. It is very um, innate, but we've just got to get over that first hurdle that actually it's normal multiplicity of the mind is normal natural um and um once we can open to that possibility we can start to play with building relationships with these parts and as you've described it can be really a life-changing thing yeah i think it, it can there's a bit of vulnerability there i think um when you first maybe start to begin to accept that okay i'm not always in control this is my language i'm not always in control um, you know, why do I procrastinate? You know, um, sometimes, you know, asking myself that question, yeah, it's okay, do it tomorrow, you know, because the voice is telling me, well, it's okay to leave it till tomorrow. But to, for me, you know, someone who's looking at a training for triathlon, it's important that I train most days and uh, not find excuses not to train. So, again, this, that book, that, that way of thinking, um, is sometimes just to think less and just do it. That's my message to myself, yeah. and, it, and, it, and it's working too. Um, sometimes you can build, you know, Bill. You can just think about it too much. Uh, just get out there and do it, you know. Um, yeah, so that's worked for me as well, Cass. So happy to hear that, Bill. Thank you so much. It's so lovely to to hear your reflections on how the book being true has impacted you and that you're continuing to play with the practices I share in the book and that they're continuing to make a difference for you. It's so incredibly heartwarming to hear that and that you're spreading the word. So thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> <You're very laughs> I'll have to ship that. a box of books up to you and you can give them away like candy. Well, I've, I've, I've been listening to you on, uh, on Audible. Oh, great. 
great. Yeah, I had a lot of fun recording the audio book. <laughs> it's kind of like six hours of therapy just reading that book out loud. <laughs> it was actually strange hearing your voice, first of all. It just, you know, because so familiar. We've worked together for you know, such a long time and no need to for a while. Yeah, it was strange hearing your voice on the, on the audio book. Good. Anyway, all good. Thank you so much, Bill. Thank you so much for what you shared today. I know for sure there's a lot of leaders that are going to relate to the stories you shared and the, the inner struggle that you so generously you know, shared with us. So thank you so much. Thank you, guys. By being true to our deepest selves, we liberate our highest potential and serve the greatest good. As the founder of the Center for Self-Fidelity, I am on a mission to help leaders feel more authentically empowered so we can co-create workspaces where people can thrive, perform, play and belong. Learn more at selffidelity.com.